Well, this morning we are going to look at Psalm 51. So if you basically want to turn to the middle of your Bibles in the Old Testament, you'll find uh, Psalms uh, there. and Track down Psalm 51 is what I want to look at uh, this morning. We'll read the whole chapter of 51. Uh, you may remember last week we looked at the end of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul uh, described for us the spiritual battle uh, that we are uh, a part of, that we're involved with, that we're in. And he talked about their schemes. There's, there's things that the devil does to throw us off course, so to speak, uh, to distract us from uh, God and his word and following and trusting him. He sends temptations our way. He sends accusations uh, our way. And this morning I want to kind of answer the question, what do you do when you fall into temptation? When you fall apart, a party to accusations, you believe these lies and you're led into uh, sin. When your life blows up and there's something really huge or something more minuscule in your life, where do you go? What do you do? What are the avenues to be uh, restored uh, in your walk with the Lord, uh, if you will? Well, enter Psalm 51, uh, one of the classic or one of the go-to psalms for repentance, for confession, uh, for being renewed uh, in our walks with the Lord. So if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Psalm uh, 51 uh, to us. Here we go, Psalm 51. The title of the song goes like this. Uh, for, the, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Hear God's word, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in all that secret place, in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered by, on your altar. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Would you pray with me? 
Father, this is uh, honest speak and honest words from a man uh, who has been uh, found out. We pray in these moments that your spirit would find us and that we would uh, learn t- to embrace the, the salvation, the grace, uh, the, sa- the life that you have given us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the, the title of this psalm, which is why I read it uh, to us, tells us that this was uh, penned from the hand of, of David. And he wrote this psalm, uh, probably one of the darkest moments uh, in his life. Uh, but the, the fruit of that moment, the fruit of his uh, encounter with God, uh, gives us this go-to uh, psalm, go-to prayer of, of confession and repentance and renewal for us. Uh, the background to this, or the, the, the reason this was such a, a dark moment in David's life is this. Uh, David, sitting on the throne, he's been in uh, power for, for some time, and a woman catches his eye, a woman named Bathsheba. Many of you are familiar with this story. He's so captured and so taken by her that he has an affair with her, and she becomes pregnant. And so to cover up uh, this uh, budding scandal, he's able to orchestrate uh, the death of Bathsheba's husband, out, who's a soldier, out on the battlefield. And the thinking is that the husband gets killed, and David can take uh, Bathsheba as a wife, and they can cover up uh, all their, their misdeeds that have gotten them into this uh, position. And sure enough, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, uh, is killed. Bathsheba becomes... Uh, the wife, and David is uh, maybe coasting, you might say. Things have been covered up, and it looks like he's going to get away uh, clean. And then one day, a prophet named Nathan comes to him and begins to share a story with David. And David is, is hearing this story about um, a rich man who's got all these sheep, just an abundance of sheep. And he tell, Nathan also tells him about it. There's another man, a poor man, who only has one lamb. And one day the rich man says, I want a meal. I want to have a good meal. And he decides to kill the lamb belonging to the poor man. Not one of his own, but he takes, the, takes from this poor man. And Nathan asks David, you know, what, what should be done? What do we do about this situation? And David says, he needs to die. You know, we've got to do some real justice here. And probably one of the, the most greatest points of application that you may find in the Bible, uh, Nathan turns to David and says, you're the man. You are the man. And at that moment, David's life explodes. It blows up. He understands who he is. He understands how he's been found out. He understands that all his sins have been exposed, and God is, is uh, bringing uh, all this back upon him. And he writes for us Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is a reminder, is a testimony, uh, is a a promise, if you will, or an avenue. If you've blown up your life, if you have failed in some way, shape, or form, uh, there is hope for renewal. There is hope for restoration. Uh, that, That repentance is that avenue for that. And Psalm 51 lays that out for us. It could be something major that's happened in your life, something that's ongoing, or it could be just a series of small things. 
Psalm 51 reminds us that you can come back to the Lord. There is renewal. There is, there is joy. There is forgiveness. There is mercy. There is compassion that you will find when you experience true repentance. And so repentance is how I want to talk about this passage of Psalm 51 this morning. I want to talk about the, the ground of repentance. And by that I mean what, what motivates us or what helps us move towards God to, to be honest with him about our sin. I want to talk about the anatomy of repentance, meaning what does Psalm 51 teach us about repentance and how we define it. And then finally I want to talk about the goal of repentance. Uh, what is, what's the renewal? What's the joy uh, that we get when we repent? And how do we, how do we keep that and really engage in that? So first, the, the ground of repentance. Look at verses 1 and 2 again, what, how David introduces this psalm. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to the great, your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. I think in these opening verses, David is giving us reasons why we can go to God with our sin, why it's not completely hopeless when we feel like we've blown everything up. The first reason is, is this. David is making an appeal to what? To God's love. He's going to him based upon what? He's saying, God, give me mercy according to your unfailing love, according to who you are. Now, that word unfailing love, maybe in, in other translations, it's steadfast love. Your translation, it may be unfailing love. But it's a translation of the Hebrew word that means covenant love. It means uh, binding love, unconditional love, unearned love, and a love that we cannot unearn. Okay? That's how David is going to God. God, you have bound yourself to us with this covenant-keeping love, that you have pledged to love us no matter how we act, that you are always going to be faithful and so show mercy to me based upon that. And you can see, you can feel it in these words, this need for compassion, that this unfailing love is doing what upon him. It's, it's humbling him. There's a sense of humility as he goes to God. God, you're a God of unfailing love. I know who I am. I know my transgressions. I know my shortcomings. In light of who you are, will you forgive? Will you work? Will you act in my life? So going to God with great humility based upon this unconditional covenant love. The second way we can ask God for, for mercy is because David knows something about the character of God. He knows something about who he is. It's like he's saying, God, you're a God of compassion. You're a God of mercy. And the reason I know that is because you're a covenant-keeping God. Because you're a faithful God. You're faithful to your people. And that has given him, as we said a moment ago, humility, but it's also given him confidence. He's assured that he knows that God is going to respond to him. He's confident that God is going to help him. That's going to, he's going to meet him with mercy, meet him with forgiveness, meet him with kindness. David knows the steadfast love of the Lord, and that is why He's able to go to God. That's why he's able to seek him out, to seek his mercy, to seek his compassion. 
It's not like he's coming, David is coming to God and saying, you know, I'm the king. I've had a lot of victories and I've done a lot of good things. Remember, I'm the guy that's described as a man after your own heart, God. And so will you cut me some slack in this area? He doesn't go based upon that at all. He says, God, I'm coming to you because I need you to act in my life according to your covenant love, according to your steadfast mercies, because of that's who you are. He goes to God with a sense of humility and with a sense of confidence. Humility and confidence, both very important. Think about it like this. If you go to God just with a sense of humility and not uh, being completely sure he's going to forgive you and how he's going to respond to you, if you go to him just like that, your confession is just going to be you beating yourself up. You talking about how bad you are and how bad it is, and you're just going to make a big deal of all the stuff that you've done. You're never going to get to the point where you're able to embrace what he is going to do for you or what he can do for you, his love, his mercy, his compassion for you, because there's no confidence, there's no belief in who he is. And if you go to God without any humility, with just all confidence, you go to him thinking, well, you're God, and I'm, your pers- I'm your, one of your people, and you're just supposed to forgive me. It's just, there's, you're a God of grace. That's just the way it is, and that's part of the deal. Without any humility, you're expecting it, and there's going to be no real change because you deserve this forgiveness because there's no humility in your life. We can go to God. We can be motivated to go to him because of his steadfast love for us in repentance. The second thing I want to talk about is the anatomy of repentance, or what does this passage teach us about the nature of repentance? What do we learn about repentance from this? And I think there's, there's three things that I want to look at. First, repentance is honesty. Repentance is honesty. Think about how David expresses his sin in this passage. Uh, for example, in verse 3, I know my transgressions. I know my transgressions. Verse 4, I have done what is evil in your sight. And basically he's saying, God, I deserve judgment. I, I deserve everything that comes my You are completely just in, in, in punishing me for, for what I have done. He's being completely honest about his sin. He's not making excuses for it. He's not blame shifting. He's not saying, you know, Bathsheba, she was just, she's just too beautiful. It's, it's her fault. Uh, he, he's, he's not uh, blaming his circumstances. I was really tired, and it was just a moment of weakness. Uh, he, he's not um, uh, rationalizing uh, his behavior, uh, saying, you know, I'm the king, and, you know, I'm not perfect, but I do a lot of good for the people, and so, you know, sometimes I deserve a little flexibility, if you will. He says, my sin is my sin. And God, you are completely just in judging me for those things and what I have done to you. And the reason I think this is uh, interesting for us is because sometimes we allow us to, to seep into our conversation with God something called counterfeit repentance. Counterfeit repentance. Meaning when we go to God and we're talking about our sin uh, to him, we can be guilty of, of talking to him in a way that sounds like repentance, but it's not really repentance. It, it's, it's not really going deep enough. We'll talk about our sin in, in, in broad terms. You know, we'll say things like, God, you know, I just don't have it all together, and if you could just help me out, uh, that would be good. I want to do better. Uh, God, help me not to do this again, and let's, let's move on from this. 
or we simply just blame others. You see, God, it, is, it was in this situation, it was, it was their fault. Or it's, it's uh, the circumstances of it all. You see what we're doing? It, it feels like confession. It feels like repentance. It feels like we're being honest with God. But we're not. We're still blame-shifting. We're still blaming other things. And David is saying here, it's my sin. God, you are completely just to judge me for that. And I'm, I want, and I'm good with that because you are completely just in doing it. The second thing we learn about uh, repentance is how we've offended God first and foremost. I think David helps us understand that when we sin, repentance means recognizing that the one that you've offended first and foremost is God himself. Look again at verse 4. He says, against you, you only. That's the Hebrew way of repeating things with, with great emphasis. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, if you think about this, it should, on some levels, this should be kind of shocking to us because we think that's who you've offended most is God. Think about what you did to Bathsheba. You got her, you got her pregnant. Uh, you, you killed her husband. Think about how he sinned against Uriah. You got him killed. Think about how he has sinned against the people. The people trusted him as their king to do rightly. And here he is doing this scandalous uh, behavior behind their backs. And David is saying what? Against you, God, that's who I've really sinned against. Now, has he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and the people? Yes. But as David is saying, ultimately, I've sinned against God. First and foremost, I've sinned against him. And all these other sins have come about because of what I did and how I disobeyed God. Think about it like, like this, the Ten Commandments. You got the first commandment. What is the first commandment uh, to us? You shall have no other gods before me. And then you get commandments of honor your parents, do not commit adultery, do not steal, don't, don't lie, don't covet, so on and so forth. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the other ones. Martin Luther in his catechism is quick to point to us, if you keep the first commandment, you don't have to worry about the rest of the commandments. If you honor God, worship God only, you're going to keep the rest of the commandments. Now go back to David. David is saying, God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is wrong in your sight. Why? Because he's worshipped somebody else. Because there's, there's been a, he's not following God. He's not keeping God first or ultimate in his life. And because he's done that, he's committed adultery. He's committed murder. He's, he's lied and so on and so forth. In other words, David realized if I had just kept that first commandment, I wouldn't have sinned against you and I wouldn't have done all these other things. And so as we think about our sin, as we think about repentance, to realize that we have sinned against God, that we've grieved his heart, that we've broken his heart, that we've uh, transgressed his law first and foremost. The last thing we learned about repentance is that it's having a true self-knowledge of who we are. Or let me think about it like this. Repentance brings us a realistic view of what we're capable of. A realistic view of what we're capable of. 
Go back to verse 5. David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What that verse is talking about is David is coming to a deeper realization of who he is. From the very beginning, David is saying, I've been a sinner. This is who I am, capable of doing this from the very start. Uh, Derek Kidner, a commentator uh, for the Psalms, writes this. He says, this crime, murder, David now sees, was no freak event. It was in character, an extreme expression of the warped creature he had always been and of the faulty stock he sprang from. David is being realistic about who he is. I've always been capable of doing this. It's just now it's come to express itself here. Netflix has a uh, murder mystery show called Broad Church on it. And it's basically a BBC uh, kind of production TV show. It's a murder mystery, as I said. And it takes, there's a murder that's taking place in a small town. And uh, there's two detectives that are working this, this case. And one detective, who's a woman, lives in that small town, grew up in that town, knows everybody there. And hearing about this murder, she's just shocked. She can't believe it. It's like, because she knows everybody. She can't imagine anybody doing such a thing. There's another man, another detective, and he didn't grow up in this town. He's more of an outsider coming in to help uh, solve this case. And they, the two of them had this kind of back and forth at one point uh, in the show about who did it and, and all this kind of stuff that's, that's going on. And this detective, the outsider's detective's view is that anybody is capable of murder. Anybody is, able, is capable of killing somebody else. And this woman, the woman detective looks at him and says, she says, no, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that. I, I don't think that's true because we all have this moral compass. Again, she knows everybody in this town and she just can't, can't imagine somebody doing it. The other detective looks at her and says, in effect, moral compasses break. And the reason I bring that up is because that, that detective gets it. He gets Psalm 51. He understands that the theology, if you will, Psalm 51 of David in Psalm 51, that we're all capable of something that we could never imagine. And David is being honest with himself. He's saying from the very beginning, this is who I am, capable of doing something so scandalous as this. And we see that repentance is being honest with what we are capable of. Now that's the, the nature of repentance, uh, if you will. Let me talk about the goal of repentance or, or how we see it uh, finally working and expressing itself uh, in our lives. And the goal of repentance is a renewed heart and a renewed joy. A renewed heart and renewed joy. First, think about a renewed heart. In in verse 9, David says, you hide your sins from me. And then in in verse 7, he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. I bring those up because you you get to feel it. That David is asking for more than just forgiveness. God, will you... Just, I want you to forgive those things, but he wants more than that. He wants to be made clean. He wants to be made clean. You see that word uh, hyssop, which is like a, a branch or a plant that they would use in cleansing ceremonies, cleansing of a leper, cleansing of somebody that touched a dead body. 
It would use that, that plant, and it's connected with sacrifices that are made, which points us to blood that need to be uh, sacrificed, life for life. And in this kind of this seedling form, we get this indicator of the cross, okay? This pointer to a life has to be given for our life if we're going to be made clean, if we're going to be made right with God. But to build on that, look at, look at verse 10. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Asking for a pure heart, a new heart that we uh, sung about a moment ago. In verse 12, give me a willing spirit. Now, why would he pray that? Why would he ask that? Why don't he just ask for forgiveness and God, just let me get, get right with you and let's be on. But David is asking for more than that. God, I want a, a willing spirit. I want a clean heart. I want to return uh, to this joy uh, that I have in you. Well, what has he discovered about himself? He's discovered verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's gone all the way back and he's thinking, if I'm capable of this, of adultery and murder, I need a new heart. Because I, what's the future going to hold for me? I never could imagine I would do something like this, but the reality is I, I have done something like this. I need a pure heart to protect me from the future. I need to be re- renewed. How much damage can I do later on? David understands his need for his old heart to be cut out. He understands his need for, God, just give me a second chance and I'll move on. That's not what he's asking. He needs more than that. He needs purity. He needs to be made right. He's asking for a a new life, if you will. Uh, He doesn't want just forgiveness, but he wants to be renewed. As you think about repentance, as you think about the goal of repentance, its its aim is this kind of renewal, being a different person, complete change. Repentance is, is turning away, turning in a new direction. The second thing that repentance leads to is a renewed uh, joy, renewed joy. Now, some of you think joy and repentance, okay? That doesn't sound like they go together. One sounds miserable and one sounds very inviting. One sounds just being so introspective and, and, telling my, and, and re- revealing all the bad news that's there. It doesn't really seem to connect with joy. How does joy come out of repentance? What's the connection there? Paul, David talking about the joy of my salvation. Well, a moment ago we learned that repentance means being honest. This is how we get to the joy with repentance. Repentance means being honest with ourselves, honest with God. It means uh, seeing that the fault's ultimately lying uh, with ourselves. It means seeing ourselves as sinners. Not somebody that can manage their own sin, that can... Uh, you know, generally does the right thing, but somebody who's just broken people, seeing that uh, of ourselves. And he's turning to God. And in that honesty, he's gone deep. He's gone deep in understanding his sin. And in going deep and understanding his sin, what's happened is the attraction of sin has lost its power. And for us, if we want to know that the joy of our salvation... The attractiveness of sin has to be gone. It has to lose its power. It has to lose its, its weight in our lives. That's repentance, where sin loses its attraction for us. 
And without that, there's no joy. You're not going to want the cross. You're not going to want grace because you're still going to be holding on to that thing that you think gives you joy and happiness. Think about it like this. This is the best way I've heard it described. Say uh, you have a, a spouse or a loved one, and, they, and they're killed, and they're killed by an arrow. An arrow strikes them dead. And somebody um, gives you that arrow. I say, this is the arrow that, that killed your loved one. What would you want to do with that arrow? You're not going to keep it in your home. Uh, it's not going to be a keepsake. You're going to burn it. You're going to destroy it. You, you never want to see that arrow again because it took a loved one out of your life. Now think about Christ on the cross. Think about what it is that got him on that cross, why he is on that cross, why he is dying for you. It's because you were selfish. It's because you lied. It's because you lusted, because you gossiped, because you were hateful. And all those things, all those reasons are like arrows. And those are the reasons that Christ is dying Because of those things, those are the things that are killing him. Do you see why sin should lose its attractional power in our lives? Because those arrows are the things that are killing the one that loves you so much. Why should we love those things? Why should those things be powerful in our lives when they're taking away from us? And yet, Christ stayed on the cross. And yet, Christ did not get down from the cross. And yet Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He stayed on that cross because he loves you. Because he wants you to know the joy of being with the Father. The joy of walking with him. The joy of trusting him. The joy of believing him. The joy of your salvation. He wants you to have and embrace. It's why he stayed on the cross. It's why we have the hope of salvation. It's why we have the hope of forgiveness. It's why we can come to him because he's done all the work for us. Repentance is simply being honest with yourself and honest with God and crying out to him for his mercy. And when you do that, sin is going to lose its attraction. It's going to lose its power. And you're going to know a joy related to your salvation. Would you pray with me? Father God, that you hear the prayers of your people who are so broken, who are so distracted, who are so captivated by anything but you. It's amazing. Father, we thank you for the gift of repentance, the joy of repentance, because we have a Savior who died for us, died in our place died for all of our sins, all of our transgressions, all of our brokenness, all the areas in our life where we have just blown things up and made a mess. Father, help us to mature. Help us to mature in repentance and turning towards you and embracing your covenant love. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.